Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Web Falcons member Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello, everyone. And freelance writer and critic Rat Nehru. It's so boring to stay alive. Gosh. But it's that means we can keep bringing you podcasts because, as as appropriate now and as is custom, we are self distancing and for another week recording from our respective abodes. We are looking forward to seeing each other in person again. But and well, you can't generally see us because this is radio. You can <laughs> we can see our lovely faces, which is which is nice. And because we have to, amidst all that's going on, we want to keep bringing you film, keep bringing you film Fight Club, and at the moment, all things that are happening in the streaming world. Yeah, it's SBS on demand time, baby, because we have some really great movies. And actually, I'm really happy because uh, the streaming world, especially with SBS on demand, has been my reprieve in this kind of uh, quasi-lockdown quarantine period because there's almost nothing else to do except watch movies. Do you think we're going to have a non-quasi-lockdown mandated soon? Oh, God, yeah. It seems like every week the restrictions get a little bit tighter. Yeah, especially because we're in New South Wales and the restrictions here are, yeah, just mind-boggling to even list out. I'm not going to list them out because Glenn, the actual solicitor slash lawyer, is going to reprimand me for listing them out incorrectly. But they are strict, is what I'm trying to say. They are very strict. Um, to note, we are also recording this on Tuesday. So as has been alluded, there may have been more measures implemented by the time this goes to Arrow Wednesday. We're not sure. Uh, we do defer to the 2SCR news coverage and other outlets who are bringing up to date stuff on what is going on um, in the non-film world. But as regards to movies, yes, we are talking SBS on demand. If there's yes. a film or if there's Two a happier streaming things. service to us to fight about. Yeah, how good. I've been watching SBS. I mean, SBS World like, Movies. TV. You know, we, uh, we at the, around the beginning of the year talked up how great it was that SBS World Movies is launching. And I really enjoyed their 70s program. Mostly films I'd seen already, but it was nice to rewatch them. But a bunch of them are now up on the streaming platform. So we thought we'd cover them since you've all got the opportunity to easily stream them. 70s special episode of Film Fight Club with streaming on demand. Yeah, we're talking a few films that have recently been added, including The Conversation, Chinatown, Serpico, Marathon Man. To note, there's been a whole new raft of uh, additions in the past a week or so, including Train to Passan, Catch-22, Dust Boot. There's 893 films currently streaming. They're great. It's free. Access the service. Um, I've been watching SBS for... A Race like, Against Time. And Will it's you... great, and I'm so glad this is here. It's a Race Against Time. Will you survive lockdown, or will the movies get you first? Depending. Or will you run out of movies, or will you run out of lockdown time? Who knows? We, 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 there was ways to go than just like a pile of cinema. Like, <laughs> mm. But uh, before we get into what is streaming, we want to quickly t- uh, recap what is happening around town, what films you can watch and things you can live stream at events from your living room. The Australian Centre for Moving Image Acme and Melbourne Cinematheque are streaming virtual Cinematheque. Last week was the first Panahi double and next, this week they'll be screening another double as of today. Pink Flamingo are doing a Thursday watch party where they will be streaming films on their Facebook page. It's Pink Flamingo Cinema in Marrickville. Static Vision, which streamed Lockdown on the weekend, a six-hour festival, which Chris and I tuned into and covered on Saturday, are having another event, a double, including Wall Palace, with an interview with the director and a Q&A, which will be streaming at midday on Saturday. We just watched Filmonic, the sister, Melbourne Sister Cell of Kino Sydney. They had a great interactive film night where filmmakers were submitting short films. There was a Q&A, people were talking, multiple cameras working with OBS Studio, and Kino Sydney are doing another edition, the, in the collective 
to Chris and I are involved in. That'll be eight, the night of April 6th, so tune into that. It'll be a live stream on the Kino Facebook page and on the website. Um, it's to recap also the places and spaces and festivals that are doing online streaming, video on demand, National Film and Sound Archive adding new stuff every week. The Japanese Film Festival have a video on demand service, it's free. The Jewish International Film Festival is streaming. The Irish Film Festival have recommendations where you can go watch Irish Film Festival flicks. Monster Fest are putting stuff up every week and Revelation Film Festival in Perth, which just postponed their dates from July to September. Also added so much more material from previous Rev Fests to their Rev on Demand service. So check all those out. And otherwise, if you're still uh, strapped for content, SBS on demand, which exactly. and if you ever must fight about from SBS yeah. on demand, let us know. We're finally now making that easier than ever because our long delayed social media pages have now launched. You can find us on Twitter at Film Fight Club AU. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Film Fight Club. As we always say, let us know what you want us to fight about. Drop us a line. Be part of the conversation here at Film Fight Club on to SER and via podcast. Perfect yep. segue because we are talking about Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. It is the one he sandwiched between The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. It probably would have won Best Picture if yeah. not for The Godfather Part 2. He's on the This was supposed to be the filler movie in between his two major epics. Yeah. Who, who, how good are you if like, oh, I just made this on the side between The Godfather films. It was at the height of his prime. Um, it's great. I watched it for the first time last night. I had the great pleasure of going to this unbeknownst. I absolutely adored it. It is starring Gene Hackman, John Cazale, and a very young Harrison Ford. It takes place in the context, not about the Watergate scandal, but certainly in the context of its fallout. It is about a surveillance expert, Harry Call, who is, has to record a conversation for a shady client and realizes that he is going into further and further into a world of dubious ethics and moral quandaries, given what he has already experienced, the fallout from a previous job he undertook. And it is about the paranoia of the surveillance industry, which soon visits itself upon Harry. What do we think of the conversation? Um, I think it's incredible. I think it's actually my favorite film by Francis Ford Coppola. I think it's a really brilliant character study about a person who tries to be unknowable and um, in order to maintain some kind of control and the stress he becomes under to come up against a situation that's unknowable for him that he can never attain any kind of mastery over. Um, I, I think it's so clear in its visual expression. The blocking is incredible. Um, the best example of this, I think, is the stage of Harry Cole's apartment this huge open space, like he's saying, there's no secrets hiding here. Um, but the way that he, I, that Coppola isolates him from people in that space, I think is, yeah, really poetic. But also, um, it's a very simple film in some ways, but with a lot of depth behind it. I, I think uh, what Chris is alluding to, and I think this is an interesting dichotomy to point out, or, you know, especially in modern contemporary movies, the way you ratchet up tension and the way you do build up tension in movies today is by fast paced editing, you know, thousand and a million cuts back and forth and back and forth and like driving everything up to 11. But what Coppola has done is fantastic because the editing is simple, but it's so precise. And the tension is built up by letting the scenes breathe rather than actually hyper editing. So actually it's conversely to the style that we're used to following today. 
but I think it's more effective than modern films in terms of how you use tension to really indicate paranoia and that kind of you know disorientation that the characters are going through. Mm. The editing, it. yeah, it's incredible. It's really, really good. Um, it's by Walter Murch, who also did the sound design. I'm pretty sure I'm just checking that. Um, he's a legend in his own right. The the way that um, the footage that Harry Cole records at the beginning of the film is repeated and throughout the film and weaved into the narrative really creates this hypnotic feeling that gets you into the mindset that Harry Cole is in. Um, it, it's quite haunting, actually, the, the sounds of the obscure dialogue that Harry becomes obsessed with. Um, yeah, it, it's a really a film... It's a film about film in a lot of ways. It's a film. It it's a film. It's a film. Um, but it really uses not. that in order to excavate details of character instead of being sort of a masturbatory movie about the yeah. nature of film. And, and I love Gene Hackman's performance. And I, think, I don't think he gets enough credit in the particular role he's done here. Because usually when you look at paranoia and these kind of situations and the main lead characters asked to portray them, they usually dial it up and it's a very hammy kind of a portrayal. But Gene Hackman is so precise in starting out at like a level three or a level four and then he dials up the volume with each subsequent act of tension and he's matching the pacing of the movie, which is very difficult to do. So as the pacing and the tension kind of dial up, he's dialing up his performance intensity according to what's demanded of that scene and that moment in the film. And it's very deliberate and very nuanced. And I think it's one of my favorite performances ever, if not only of Gene Hackman. It's should say. one of my favorite performances from Hackman. I think it's, he's a master and he has certainly been over many decades. I love his later work also in terms of Superman, um, a film I didn't very much like on a jury. Also, it's one of his better later performances. Um, a film I watched and was introduced to him growing up with Enemy of the State, which is a thematic, if not character continuation for his character is exceptional and we see um, the, the similarities and it it made me appreciate a film I'd watched year, year, over many, many years, multiple times, uh, even more. In terms of the blocking, I think it's more than that. I love how he lets characters and action breathe within a space, whether it be the warehouse scene, whether it be the beautiful opening shot where we slowly zoom in on an aerial view of individuals. We are acclimatized to movement in a way that we aren't traditionally done so in film. In modern cinema, it's the call to always zoom in and to be so close to, to movements to, as so as to emphasize it. But he conversely emphasizes it by letting it set, letting be so distinct within an otherwise plaintive frame. But more than that, and more than any other element, I love the camera work in this film. I love how at the beginning we see um, so we see characters from afar and slowly move in and gradually and gradually throughout each successive scene the camera work becomes more constricting constrictive so as you can't breathe and suddenly when it is finally tight um, we're not used to it and has therefore when we wants to have its biggest impact in later sequences including a key sequence in a hotel room it has that impact and also, and moreover on the matter of how this film is a simulacrum of cinema itself we see uh, like we do in Rewindow to an extent, the Harry Cole character as the voyeur, and then as we see that turn back on him, and that feeds our own sense of paranoia and mistrust and concern, and that feeds and just evolves the entire film. So I really appreciate it. I think it shows a more sophisticated knowledge of how film translates on a basic level 
um, yeah. than most other directors have managed to achieve. I totally agree. I mean, we've talked about Gene Hackman being a wonderful performer, but there's another performer in this film, a sort of young man who I don't think we know about yet because he wasn't really that famous, but I think we kind of know. He would become famous very soon. I'm not sure. But yeah. Harrison Ford, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, wonder who he is. He's an up-and-coming actor, I would say. To give you you guys a little bit of behind-the-scenes um, knowledge of how Film Fight Club works, we actually recorded this uh, <laughs> episode earlier. <laughs> no. I forgot to press record. So this mm-hmm. is a bit of, a little bit of a low-energy rehash of the version <laughs> we did earlier. But something we discussed is that Harrison Ford could have had an amazing career playing villains based on this. He, he has the most rehearsed Film Fight Club in a way. Yeah, yeah he, has, he, he really um, has a lot of darkness to him here. And it, it makes sense that he later on played rogues um, when it, often when he was cast in a heroic yeah. role. But, but, but I could have had such a different I'll recap my earlier comments to, as directly as I can. Um, when Harrison Ford started on the scene, his first breakout role was American Graffiti. He wasn't playing a bad guy, but he was playing um, not a good guy. But his great breakout, obviously, what he's most well-known for, he stands as Han Solo in Indiana Jones. He was the charming rogue. He was the hero. He went on to um, variations of this in so many films, including playing Jack Ryan. And we see in this, and American Graffiti, this alternate vision of Ford where he plays this menacing figure um, in a similar way that in the early Humphrey Bogart, he is always the thug, he was always the bad guy. And then Maltese Falcon came along and suddenly, oh, he's the good guy. Um, Ford is a really underrated actor. He certainly has this range, but in his later career, when everyone's focused on, oh, we just want to see this new version of Han Solo, Indiana Jones. Uh, this is a dimension we never got to see, but we got, got a little peek of here. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. And this is a very different kind of forward uh, because he's not playing the even though in later f- format where he's basically playing versions of Han Solo, uh, where he's going on in this roguish charm, there is no charm here. He's actually quite, you know, ruggish and quite devoid of any kind of charm. It's quite menacing and properly menacing and not charm many, charmingly menacing as he would play in a lot of later iterations of Han Solo type characters. So yeah, I'd really kind of want to go into this alternate time and, and wish he got another chance as a, as a bad guy, because he did have potential to really tap into that. Um, two, fi- two final points in this. Um, one, there are a lot of films where there's a dimension of paranoia or gaslighting, or you're wondering, is this person experience what they're experiencing? And this is certainly one of the template which many have built on. Um, however, but it does so grounded. It's, it's much more grounded here. Yeah, because it, it does we, so in a way that is not over the top. Um, that it's all it's very well written in the way that it grounds everything within the the psychology of harry cole um it brings you into his mind state enough that it doesn't just seem like theatrics about oh is this guy crazy like his paranoia you could step outside and see is he being paranoid but it also it feels very real and it it feels natural yeah there's a key scene at the very beginning when a character um, in a circumstance where we would normally think, or someone overhears this, would normally think, "Oh, this person is um, is is not a, is not of sound mind." That they believe that they are being recorded or watched, and we've learned in a moment that they are, and it really establishes the world he's operating in. So when he starts to have similar feelings of concern, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's grounded, it's believable, it's relatable, and it's much it's m- that much more eerie. And the whole film escalates from that 
um, stage. It's, it's very well, it's very well scripted. It's very tightly scripted. It's very well done. And uh, it's actually uh, a film that I I hope gets more love because I think a lot of people because it's sandwiched between that filmography it, with Godfather one and two. A lot of people just don't realize how good a film it is because they automatically want to have that reverence with the Godfather movies. And they've never held oh, up for me in comparison as well. That's what conversation has. Um, I think I think this film actually is still quite well seen as far as 70s films is, is goes. It's definitely one of the, the classics of the 70s. Um, it is such a brilliant character study. The way that, um, sorry to rewind the conversation a bit, the way that we see Harry call... Um, what it takes to make him open up, <laughs> but yes. um, it seems like any kind of uh, potential forward momentum for this character is um, negated by circumstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, that's it, right. It, it, it's such a bleak mentality that the film expresses in true seventies cinema style, but it but also feels very reticent. It and doesn't feel gratuitous. Very, yeah, and very kind of. Maybe it's just how we are today, and it kind of felt like, oh, this kind of feels not so far distant today, given how bleak things feel right now. Well, on a on a very happy note. <laughs> I do have to I do have to challenge you on The Godfather. I do consider that to be one of the great masterpieces of the past few yes, years. Yes, we, we have we have to I fight about this because you're wrong. We'll have to do a future episode where we cover The Godfather trilogy. And, and have a proper uh, fight two about God, this. What do you mean? There's, there's two not fun if, films. It's not fun if you don't talk about Godfather 3. <laughs> I suppose so. Oh dear, it's still so, so bad. I like the second one a lot. Um, nothing on the first for me. Uh, but no, glad to talk about the Godfather and the Godfather series. Yes. As, as, as we are the Godfathers uh, so that is the cinema. conversation. Uh, we are the three Godfathers. Oh, the three wow. Godfathers. Yeah. That's a good that's, reference. <laughs> um, so moving on, the conversation is streaming on SPS on demand, and the next one we're talking about is Roman Polanski's Chinatown from 1974. It is, in my view, uh, Polanski's best film. It is Polanski makes had some Nicholson. great ones. Rosemary's oh, no, Baby, no, no uh, Repulsion, Pianist. Yeah. Pianist, yeah. The Pianist is my favorite Polanski, but okay, uh, I can see why Chinatown would be right up there. Happy to debate it, um, but uh, in terms, but I don't think the pianist is playing an SBS on the one. But Chinatown is. It is starring Faye Dunaway and Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson plays Jake Giddy's a private eye in 1930s Los Angeles, where he tasked with following someone who and who believes that his client believes is unfaithful to their spouse starts off a whole chain of events which sees him getting involved in a gritty underworld of 1937 los angeles and neo-noir plots i say neo-noir because this is the first film which really harnessed the idea properly that you don't have to be black and white to be a noir it's not so much about style but thematic resonance and this kind of certainly um, town stands as a bulwark of the genre it revives and plays with a bunch of noir templates um which were was I think a fresh approach in the seventies, but the ways that it's a different approach from the traditional noir film um, are what's really striking to me. Usually um, the style of noir in its heyday was very American. I would say very focused on fast paced, witty dialogue, um, very focused on cleverness because it's following the kind of Raymond Chandler style 
this is much more about the image, which is not to say the original noir films weren't visually striking, but this film is really much more European in approach with this um, kind of long shots and long periods uh, based primarily around atmosphere with no or almost no dialogue. Um, and the, what the atmosphere of the film really stood out to me. It's, it feels so haunted. It, the, the, dry, the arid landscapes um, around the dam that's dried up, um, the long empty streets. I noticed that um, there's almost no crowd scenes in this film. It just feels really yes. lonely Yes, with this feeling of dread building up throughout um, and leading up to just a crushing release. Yeah, I was, I was really I, I impressed mean, It's, it's a stylistic this. choice that the Coen brothers would go on to exploit very well in terms of how the landscape can really trap characters within, you know, and try to like, you know, you're not escaping something which is external force, but you're actually just trapped within the landscape and it kind of feels it can sap everything out of you. And actually this film does build to that extent really well. I also really liked the, the lingering shots of, of faces and the way that it would it studies characters after um, where a more traditional style would cut away. Um, there's a lot of detail to this world that's built up incrementally. And, and the hyper close-up shots. On the manner of, of landscape, I love how it is the plot of the film, the basic premise of the movie take something so innocuous, so complex, so regular, and makes it so sinister. I'm referring broadly to a public utility that would be in the course of all our lives. There are films that have done this since, but public utility. well, I love the beautiful shots of Giddy's <laughs> public utility. Yeah. I love the beautiful shots of Sorry, um, joke, guys. driving through. I, 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 <laughs> in, yes. Um, I love the moments where I think it was one of the first films to recognize how a camera actually works by showing the image upside down when Jake is photographing a couple. I love the performances. I adore John Huston. Well, I don't adore John Huston. I think he's brilliant. I just think it's Faye Dunaway's best performance. I like her in The Thomas Crown Affair and Bonnie and Clyde and some of her later work. But this, and I note especially the famous, the two famous final harrowing scenes involving her character. Um, the introduction where she is just so stylish when she walks into Giddy's office, but still this figure of um, mystery and glamour and sadness at the same time. I think very mm. few performers could uh, pull it off to that extent. And Nicholson, um, going into Cougar's Nest, coming off Easy Rider, oh, streaming an SBS on demand, um, one of his very best turns to date. And he's always, he's always excellent. I still prefer him as McMurphy, but um, it, those two would rank very highly up among my very favorite Nicholson performances. I love how he is in some ways so ultra competent and in other ways of a fool who's in way too deep and how he sort of alternates between these, these two places. We, yeah. Similar to um, the conversation actually, where you get to see him in his ele element and so complicated and sorry, so um, competent. And then you get to see him just full flat on his face. Um, but, and but the, I think the noir template works really well, especially in those areas where, you see a hyper-specialized fool, right? And, and that's a very particular description. Mm. But hyper-specialized in the sense, when he's allowed to do just his thing, which only he can do, he's mm. brilliant at it. But he doesn't have the tools that an otherwise, you know, worldly competent person would have to do basic mm. things that you can just expect from some other people. You know, oh, you can't do this, but you can do this other brilliant thing. 
how? Right, exactly. This world. Yeah, there's a lot of. Um, it sounds so that, funny and stupid at the same time. I, yeah, I love his line reading of, um, "I like my nose. I like yeah. breathing out of it." Right. <laughs> um, the, a lot of people have commented on how perfect the script for this is, but it's true. As a as a mystery progression, it makes logical sense. It like it's it it's a good plot. Yeah. Um, that is very well studied from A to B. And and I think the beautiful part about it is that even after you know the mystery, it holds together. It doesn't spoil the experience of a rewatch. I mean, it's not a whodunit mm. like a conventional whodunit. It's not even no, about, that's true. Yeah, it's not about the reveal of low. Oh, you know, this is what happened. It's the it's an atmospheric noir film. As, so the, it's about atmosphere and character. And, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. My favorite thing about this, though, in terms of the script, is the use of MacGuffin. Now this does have MacGuffin. We don't actually really know what it is till later in the series. And like with the Maltese Falcon, other noirs, MacGuffin is always the sinister object. But we turns out, we know, when it, we found out what it actually is, it's such a shocking about turn for realize it's nothing of the nature that either we expected or that the object of desire or what everyone's craving is typically like in one of these dark gritty movies, which makes the very impactful end. We don't want to ruin it all that much more powerful. It's a great movie. Um, I, I'd, I've watched it multiple times. I strong, good strong, I couldn't highly recommend it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful film. And yeah, I think there's something to recommend classics again, because revisiting them actually just sometimes reaffirms your faith in cinema. Because I think sometimes we just give them a bad rap. Oh, they're classics, you know. But there's a reason that they're classics and they actually still hold up and there's something to learn from each of them. So conversation, Shannon Town, both of them gave me a lot of love in a rewatch. Yeah, I, I was glad to be gifted the opportunity. TV is funny that way. I wouldn't it's be rewatching these films if not for them just reappearing on the schedule. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the thing. So I'm, well, Yay, I'm, old media. I'm thankful for uh, what's the world situation in right now. But in a way, I am that I'm getting the but it's like. There's always the silver it. lining that I watched Chinatown. <laughs> so, yeah. No, no, I'll start to comment on that beautiful scene where the body comes out of the river. But uh, yeah, like how, how stylistic is this? There are happier films in SBS on the yeah. There are uplifting ones. Um, I can, Elections on there. Slow West yeah. is on there. Not that it's really an uplifting film. I wonder uh, if this is the, this, the with this, this 70s Stalin. style. Um, cynicism is going to come back into fashion. Um, watching a lot of the films we were talking about and that were programmed, I, I kept noticing how um, they have a similar theme, <clears throat> excuse me, a similar theme of don't look too deeply under the surface yeah, or else you're going to yeah. find... They, I have like a hidden truth and generally the people who search too deeply are doomed another one of those films yeah. with this theme that they played but um but as part of this 70s series on sbs world movies but wasn't on on demand was network it's such a That's persistent correct. theme i'm not sure if it, it's a result of um i mean the it's, feeling it's of a, betrayal after vietnam but it's, it's a, a consistent that, thing in 70s yeah. american cinema it's a theme that our patron saint of cinema that chris and i adore david lynch returns to a lot well, well i was actually it was thinking a lot about lynch um when i watched chinatown that like there's yeah. certain um, certain scenes are definitely in his films are definitely drawing, paying tribute. I think. Yeah, I, I, I oh, he's. Where else where he gets David Lynch? Um, certainly, I, I do agree. Lynch was the best parts of what we see. David Lynch is heavily inspired by seventies cinema. I, I mean, love 
Network's one of my all-time favorite films. I love Pashevsky. We're actually talking about a Sidney Lemay film later in the program, but we have to wrap up in a minute because we are going to the podcast. Um, So if you are listening on the radio, do subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Let us know what you wanted to fight about. Something on streaming, there's so much going on. Um, Do check out these festivals that are happening online. And yeah, just check out SBS On Demand. We're going to be talking more about Serpico, about Marathon Man, but there's 893 films and... Um, I love a lot of them. Uh, several of those rank among my all-time top favorite 50. And there's many more I'm looking forward to exploring over the coming, um, well, weeks because um, it's free and it's there and you should get on it. Yeah, I've got my dad hooked on SBS World Movies and I think it's my biggest accomplishment because he was one of those people who hated watching movies with subtitles. So I think Bong Joon-ho got, it, got to him. So he's loved Parasite and ever since that, He's saying, I'm going to watch more movies which are with subtitles. So yeah, SBS World Movies is his thing now. It's his jam. It can happen to you as well. Get on it. So yeah, um, have a wonderful and safe night wherever you're listening. Um, stay tuned for more Film Fight Club. Have a listen. And uh, this has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. Stay safe. And good night. Take care, guys. Good night. And welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we're talking all things SBS On Demand, what you can stream, what you can watch, and specifically the 70s flicks and 70s classics that are streaming on there. We've discussed all things conversation in Chinatown. We're going to be talking about Serpico soon, but first we are talking John Schlesinger's Marathon Man uh, from a screenplay by William Goldman. It is starring a very young Dustin Hoffman and a veteran of screen stage, Laurence Olivier. This is about a young... Not to mention Roy Scheider. And Roy Schneider, yes, yes, of Jaws fame, uh, Chief Brody, later became known as Wars, later be synonymous with Chief Brody. But a young man played by Dustin Hoffman in the marathon, who's broadly speaking embroiled in an attempt uh, by a Nazi war criminal to elude justice in the United States. Um, yeah, it's the early time of Dustin Hoffman. This was post Benjamin Braddock, but pre all the president's men. It was when he was just coming of age as a very well-known performer. And yeah, what do we think of Marathon Man? Well, I, I thought... I, sorry, go on, Chris. Oh. That's okay. Uh, you, you can go, because... Uh... Yeah, so, so yeah, okay. social distancing uh, podcast. <laughs> I will, I look at my, it's, I'm going to edit this part, so it's fine. We'll just cut this part. Um, you, we're going to talk about... Oh, well, I, I had not seen this. It's my first time watching this one, so it, I, I came in fresh. And I was surprised to like it as much as I did. It it does follow a, a very interesting... It goes in ways and places that you don't expect. Uh, and often, because the setup is so predictable, and you think, ah, oh, this is how it's going to go. And it kind of does surprise you with a very predictable setup. And it just kind of pulled the carpet off your feet a few times. So I was surprised by that pleasantly, not, not in a cheated kind of way. I did feel like it was a pleasant kind of cheating. <laughs> I was, um, I actually had almost probably the exact opposite reaction to that. I think it's well made. Um, yeah. and I, I did get swept up in it a fair bit, but I think of the films we're talking about, this is probably the one that's dated the most. Um, and the reason I think that is because I think this film has been used as the template for so many mainstream thrillers over the years yeah. that now, um, it feels a little bit basic. Like I've seen so many films like this since. Um, I don't think that's necessarily through fault of the film itself. 
Um, but it, it ends up feeling a bit straight down the line as a result for me. Yeah. Um, I, I liked Laurence Olivier as a mega Nazi. Okay. Yeah. The performances are my favorite things about this. I liked them both. I, the, the my two favorite scenes were the one very violent infamous scene involving, uh, let's just, so we just say dental surgery and the later sequence yeah. involved, um, the final sequence in the film, which involves a, uh, not a lot of dialogue, but two very emphatic, very talented actors at heights of their game. Uh, having said that, I liked individual sequences in this film rather than the overall film itself. I do, however, think that it, while yes, it is the template for a lot of other genre fare, it's a very specific niche genre that isn't generally covered in cinema. Um, the idea of the, the idea of Nazis escaping justice. I mean, just today there was a story of a 93-year-old Nazi who died and hadn't, as I understood, gone to prison. So there's still a very prevalent issue. And, it, and it, as it was very much in the 70s, this is one of the, probably the most mainstream film to dramatize it in a thriller way. There are other films that mm. have done it, Israeli film Walk on Water, but that was much more of a contemplative one. This is an action thriller. And um, for covering the territory, I do think it's relatively novel, but I do appreciate that it does follow uh, a lot of tried and tested uh, motifs that we've seen both prior to the film's release in the 70s, prior to the 70s and, and even after. also following it, which, um, yeah. yeah. I think um, I do like how much danger the protagonist gets in, as uh, Glenn was talking about with the dental scene. I like yeah. that he really there, there's, him in. there's real stakes in there, definitely. It, it does feel like, you know, yeah. they're not, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I found when the climax rolled around, I just said, thought to myself, this is just so American. <laughs> like, it's so <laughs> classically Hollywood. Yeah, um, but also, like, it, it's, it's not in your face patriotism. Like, you know, it's, it's not that kind of like, oh, no, but wave, let me wave the flag, the American flag at your face kind of thing. Like, yeah, it, it's not America, that. But America it's, kind of thing. Yeah, it's but it's that, so, that. but really. just, just the, the, the approach to um, that, like the resolution. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Look, the thing uh, is, maybe it's just seeing it in a series of yeah. like films that were generally a lot bleaker than this one. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting connecting this to the other films in the series SBS programmed is um, this still feels like a conspiracy thriller, like a government conspiracy. Oh yeah, totally. It's actually just about a private thing involving some Nazi guy who wants diamonds. But it has the, thing the feeling is like, of like the overarching conspiracy and paranoia. Yeah. But the, but the beautiful um, part about it is like, I don't know if, for you, I don't know if you saw that or not. Maybe that's what really got your nerve because what I really liked about it is that there's an element of like, uh, a pulpy mystery intrigue element which is sort of like b-grade mm. except the movie is not b-grade in this treatment but it's yeah. got a very paperback b-grade pulpy plot which is yeah like, i think i think this I movie would have been a this. b movie in the 50s or 60s but it got to be made as an a movie in the 70s and i like that when I, i'm not against that idea well when i saw this i kept thinking of the frederick Forsyth novels that i grew up reading um so another one that i noted that it's screen on sbs demand is the fourth protocol a very underrated pierce brosnan film uh, i think for the subject matter it became elevated as an a thriller but having said that while it doesn't have all the b movie many b movie cliches the ending is imbued with a sense of the real world dramatic and the pulpy revenge aesthetic 
I think it's, it's grounded enough that it works here, especially with the very final scene where it shows we want, it's this idea of amidst all this terror and carnage, we just want to go on. But the trouble with going through the routine or semblances of real life, when you've um, experienced something like this, I thought that was um, very resonant. So I, I, I like this. And I think moreover for, I think it could have been a much pulpier film and a much lesser film if it had been a campy or more over the top or more blatantly evil performance from the lead. But Olivier, he's just, so, we never talked about him on the show. He's just so bloody good. He always plays good guys. He was famous for playing Hamlet. My favorite performances from him is, in, is from the Daphne du Maurier adaptation, Rebecca, where he plays not a good guy, not a bad guy. There are many shades of gray here. It's very debatable. I'm very much looking forward to the Army Hammer remake. But he, this way, there's, there's, there's a remake with Army Hammer? Army Hammer and Lily James. It's been filmed already? I think so, yes. I think it's in post-production. Oh, wow, okay. Oh, God. But why? I, I don't think <laughs> I'm as good as Lawrence Olivier, but look, it's a great story. I, I'll see as many I mean, adaptations as I made. Yeah. And, and, okay. and sure in that, he got nuance that he could get from a more menacing character, as we talked about in the context of Harrison Ford earlier. So I, I like this dimension of him. I appreciate what Olivier was able to do with this character. Look, the... the I want to get back to what Chris was saying because I think I think the interesting point about this is uh, a lot of films you usually get the other way around in the sense where a kind of a macro plot or a macro conspiracy is told in a private way, which is in a personal setting, but you never get a personal or a private story that is elevated into a macro conspiracy. It is following the opposite template, and in that sense, uh, and a lot of thrillers have tried to do that but failed miserably. But in this one still hit the right notes. Even though I knew what was coming by the point of it, I think I was buying into the universe of, okay, grandiosity that this film was going for, even though it still felt like this could have been sorted out with two people and you know they could have just met up and be like, oh, cool, okay, this is what you want. Let's get it, get, get it done with. It doesn't require that kind of world building that the film actually thinks it does. But that was funny and it was enjoyable to see that the scope could be going in that direction. Olivier is great in this. They all are. I appreciate that a lot of the of Goldman's narrative in its purest form is reaching for this pulpy aesthetic. However, I think the nature of the direction and the actors mean that this is a film that takes itself a lot more seriously and um, that certainly is evident in the finished product. And this was very much at the time when Dustin Hoffman was you know, at, at a new thing in Hollywood. Um, oh. His performance is all very, very serious and that lends the film its tone along with Olivier's approach more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, th- I think I've, I've sort of hit, understood this now where Chris and I digress and uh, correct me, Chris, if I am wrong, but what I like about the film is the fact that usually you get a story where you take a macro story, which is like the world is coming to an end, but you tell it in a very personal way. We've seen a lot of those stories like that, where the stakes are high, but you're driving the personal, the, the driving narrative is the personal narrative that's driving you through this kind of you know world building that's happening around you. This film is, does the opposite, and a lot of films try to follow this template but failed eventually. Where in, it is actually at the crux of it, a personal story it could have been sorted out between two people, but instead you have this big world building, like everything is happening around them, and it feels a lot bigger than it needs to be. 
But uh, I really did enjoy that because it made me feel like it's a good old popcorn thriller. So I could have my popcorn, you know, sit down and really enjoy that kind of classic 70s movie experience, which I was missing. And I do miss that kind of big screen, you know, spectacle cinema, but not spectacle just in the sense of big budget, but spectacle in the sense of like everything matters and hinges upon this one decision that you make in your personal life. And I bought into that world. And if you buy into that world, then it's okay. I agree. It does feel big, despite being focused on the one yeah. character. Basically, like eventually, I kind of felt like after the movie finished, I thought, "Well, these two guys could have talked it out, and it would have been okay." <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I disagree. I think there's a lot more going on here, and it's not that pulpy in effect. I mean, there's it, it feels like a narrative, and I say pulpy uh, with other, affection. Actually, and I, with another driver, yeah. I think it's an affectionate term, but I feel with another dr- other drivers it could have been poppy but this is a film that was reaching for higher art <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely not higher art i can I, but it's good okay. it, 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 i i think i think it's a good thriller yeah it is, it is. Yeah, I recommend definitely definitely a good thriller it's a very enjoyable thriller i mean i wouldn't say like but... I, I wouldn't recommend this in like film school but i would also like it's a friday hey, night hey. film that i can watch with the family <laughs> I agree that it's not higher art per se, <laughs> but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Higher art. <laughs> oh, um, actually, it's something we didn't mention earlier. Uh, we, when we ran through the festivals and places that were um, doing events, um, the Australian Film and Television Radio School, afterwards of which um, I'm an alumni, they are they do have a number of online courses but they are doing more and more online courses now a lot of the teaching has gone online they just offered a whole bunch of new syllabuses and material for people who are looking to do stuff a friend of mine joked the other day hey you should now write that screenplay and i think people can possibly do that now john carpenter made a point like that he's on facebook the other day he was saying now is the time get your scripts done now is the time yeah it's true yeah now's the time now's the time to watch SBS on demand and mm-hmm. get the man. And the other one we're covering is Serpico with by Sydney LeMay. We discussed network earlier. Network remains my favorite of his pictures and it is starring Al Pacino, who we referenced briefly earlier. He obviously started in the Godfather series, which uh, we would look forward to debating at a later date. And this is a film about Serpico, a real life figure who was a police officer and his uh, work in exposing corruption in the police force. What do we think? It's okay. Uh, nah, I okay. Was, I, was, I don't know. It did, I was least impressed by this one. It, 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 Me too. Maybe, I wouldn't say least impressed. Not impressed? Is that, is that a, better, is a better way of saying that? I don't know. It, 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 felt, nah, it like, the, the biggest issue about it for me was that it feels too condensed and yeah. too compressed. Um, it, you know, it, like, it's giving you the facts and like, look at how unjust this is without... Um, Oh, so much you... moral preaching in this film. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe fine. maybe this is it's another not case. Fine. Come on. Bro. No, I'm saying, and that's maybe... what I'm saying. It's just fine. It's a decent uh, procedural thriller. Actually, we should this... hear from you first before we sort of like when... shit on everyone's parade. Yeah, we should hear from you first. This is this film was from the time when the sexiest thing a lot of directors wanted to do <laughs> was show scenes where people were testifying, and I this started with Elijah Kazan on the waterfront. And we saw it again, <laughs> Godfather Part Two. And Post Watergate cinema. 
recreating like the height of the online television scandals surrounding Watergate. And this is a film that goes to that. It does it all right. I like Pacino in this, but it's a character which, where he and everyone involved is so looking at making him an upstanding figure that it has none of the interest or complexity of Michael Corleone or any other characters who go on to play. If you want, and even Scarface, you want a good Pacino film. Like, Serpico is fine, but you want a good Pacino film, go watch Carlito's Way. Even go watch Sea of Love. They're so good, especially Carlito's Way. I liked, the, uh, early, I liked the early stuff in here showing how he's... Um, was never going to fit in with the cops because he's way too much of an individual. Um, and that's the point where I thought that the character was being sketched in an interesting way. But after that, like I said, it's just way too broad strokes and yeah, condensed. But is is, like, is there an actual character? It shows you... I, I don't think so because it's all... The characters are holding or a stand-in for play carding and, you know, just uh, cardboard cutout level of, you know, broad strokes moral preaching. This is bad or this is good or you should behave like X. Uh, shows you the um you know that he's being mistreated and made to feel guilty by his fellow cops without you ever really feeling that mind state that is spending so much time depicting um it, it, i um I think like you know it's showing you for example how he's becoming stressed by showing him breaking up with his his girlfriend but She's barely a character and you don't yeah. really see how any of that happens. It's just one of many events that happens in this overrushed narrative. So you don't really feel it. Most of the characters aren't sketched out. I don't think the compression was the issue. Even if this film was longer, it would still only go on with you know, terribly placarded dialogues where things ought to be this way versus it, you know, this is bad and this is how things should never be. I'm here to clean up the city kind of things. Oh my God. I mean, just, enough with the self-righteousness but this film just i don't know <laughs> maybe after watching something like the conversation and like and chinatown it just was like such much a downgrade. we should note in fairness yeah in fairness yeah. for this movie this came at such a different time when corruption in the police force particularly in this jurisdiction was such a controversial subject and i think police were viewed in a very different way than they are. Uh, yeah. I was thinking America. that about so this I, film as I well. I appreciate the film was much more topical and prescient then. Than yeah. That today, today we think, Oh, police corruption. Yeah. Sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I think it, it's a way that this film was quite dated. Yeah. I love the police. Right. I, yeah. yeah. Lume. Lume was always director who was very prescient in the work he did. I mean, I love, Dog Day Afternoon. I think it's the best work he did with Pacino. Uh, we talked it's about a great network, film. Um, a the film. verdict that is super underrated uh, as a courtroom drama. Um, I mean, I, I appreciate Serpico, but I'd recommend seeking those ones out over that. But, also starring Kazali, who made like only a handful of films in his life, and they're all considered fairly so um, some of the highs of cinema of the seventies. Amazing, amazing. Before. But 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 that's the thing, and that's that. the thing that actually kind of pains me a little bit is that. It's not like Lumet is a bad director. In fact, he put out some really great movies and there's nothing of Lumet as a director that you can see trademarks of in this film. I think this is what the film lacks. It doesn't feel like anything. It's a film that's just been churned together. It's been put together. Pretty bland. It doesn't have any kind of directorial trademarks of Lumet that you can even say that, oh, at least he's trying for something. He's not even trying. It kind of feels like he's sleepwalking. Mm. 
it's a very rushed he, he, film that's put together. Yeah, the character of Serpico depicts. Yeah, it's it's he's not a um, character. He's this. He's a campaign. He's an idea. He's this template which the filmmakers want to throw I, idea uh, concepts on. Um, which is fine. The, I, I like campaign style movies. Procedural can be fine, but it that doesn't necessarily mean it's creative. We want more from the types of auteurs who like. Um, like LeMay, he's, and he, he, it's in fantasy, like, it's a fine film. He went on to do his best work. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm nothing against campaign movies. For example, campaign style movie that I remember and I really like is Sean Penn starring Milk, which is a classic campaign style movie where uh, the character of Harvey Milk was essentially a stand-in for ideas, ideologies, and, and rights, and what was a stand-in for that. And it wasn't fleshed out beyond that, but still... That filmmaking was, was a lot more adventurous in Milk. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, like you could do so much more even with that style of movie making, but this film just lacked that. It was just, I think Lumet felt he had enough controversy in air quotes if he just put in enough procedural stuff in there. But Milk was a film with a character that was heavily based on rhetoric, whose public face and persona we're just trying to put out to the world was rhetoric. This was, was that grandiose, as well. was speechifying, and which, which is wholly different. And so it, it worked in Milk. I liked Milk a lot. Yeah. It, it's just distinct from a film like Serpico, where you need a character who, uh, where, they, where they're trying to play a real life figure, who wasn't a public figure, who didn't have designs of being a public figure, but became so in his own personal quest for justice, in a, in a, in a quest for justice. I don't know. I, I think they, they're um, both. Yeah. Uh, that is Serpico. It yeah. is. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. It is an SBS amount. And, uh, but I, I think I would slightly digress and change the point that I think Lumet was vying for that milk style figure because he thought Serpico, or the Serpico character that he's depicting in his film was a bit like Harvey Milk, except the movie making and the style of movie making had nothing to match that kind of adventurous uh, campaign style efforts. But yeah. yeah, this film could have been better, basically. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, it's good, but um, I, I like the films that have come up in conversation too. Go see Milk, go see Dog Day Afternoon, um, go see the stuff that's on SBS On Demand, Woman at War's on there, Once Upon a Time in the West, um, Slow West, um, The Lives of Others, my favourite film from 06, um, L, uh, outstanding uh, feature from Verhoeven, yeah. um, Strangerland, Running Man, Sleepy Hollow, Brigsby Bear, and not, um, it, Danger There's Night some interesting, yeah, there's some cool stuff. It's, a, it's such a surprisingly good streaming service. One thing I'll say to its detriment is compared to something like Netflix or Stan, the streaming quality isn't so good. Some of these 70s movies with their big grain um, end up looking pretty bad. Um, like the, uh, the compression can't really handle the grain, so it ends up looking a little bit smudgy. I've, I've, I've um, noticed but, uh, they, they perform better on, on mobile phone screens than uh, the big screen or laptop. Right. Um, I th but yeah, I think this is... Oh, acceptable because it's free. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you true. Know, it's a great selection of movies you can and a lot of basically people are using it right now. Get on board with, yeah. yeah. That is true. Yeah. Um, yeah, get, get, get on it. Um, few, what else is playing on there? Uh, there's a few Irish flicks that are really good The Drummer and the Keeper, The Journey, A Date for Man Mary, um, um, Al Moldavar, The Skinner Livens on there, Land of Mine, Love and Mercy. Um, Adlazo of Asterix and, and Oblix fame passed away last week, and there's a lot of Asterix films in there, including my favorite of the Asterix films, Asterix and Oblix, Mr. Cleopatra, which is a direct yeah. adaptation of Asterix and Cleopatra. 
Should we just stories on this like on Northquake Korean fight about the Asterix movies? Uh, Chris, have you seen any of the Asterix movies? I've only seen like ten minutes of one. Are you are you interested in seeing them? I mean, I could if 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 I'm forced to. I no, I I have fond memories as a kid, and I've never rewatched them as an adult. So I would love to have a rewatch. Yeah, some are good and some are very bad. Um, that's not the same with the novels to a point. Um, up till uh, Asterix and Obelix all at sea, right before then, right before Asterix and Sun, I think it's like 26 of them to that point, and they're all absolutely masterful, some of the best comics ever written. And the ones that are based on those, like Asterix the Gaul, the original of action notation, um, Asterix Obelix Mission Cleopatra was quite good. But there's Asterix and Obelix films that come out every year, some animated, some live action, there's so many. They're still, they haven't, tra- they haven't caught on here but they're so popular in central and eastern europe they're like a little genre and so they're like the carry-on films that used to come out every year it's like oh another asterix film all right let's go see this um and yeah low budget and people like them and they're all they're all up there fantastic i love asterix yeah tell us uh what your favorite stuff on sbs on demand is so tell us what you want to fight about and we'll have social media so you can also you know, let us know on social media about what you want to fight us about. Our Twitter handle is Film Fight Club AU. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Film Fight Club. Great. Yeah. Um, follow. And then add us so you can tell us what you want us to watch. And if it's the yeah. Godfather series, that's okay, because we're happy to fight about those. Just let us know. Um, or Gattaca. Make us watch Gattaca. That's streaming on SBS On Demand. Gattaca's great. Or, or you can make us watch anything you want. I mean, we're not going anywhere. Nobody's going anywhere. We'll all be cozied up in our homes for a while. There are options. Make us watch Headhunters. Headhunters is really good. And next week, we're going to be covering Howard Hawks. Um, we, we've talked about doing 30s, 40s, 60s films to ages. Finally going to do it. Bringing up Baby, Scarface, um, General Refer Blondes, Monkey Business. He made a lot of Great movie, The Big Sleep. My favorite story about Howard Hawks is that he was given a ridiculous amount of money to buy the rights for Raymond Chandler for The Big Sleep. He bought him for like a tenth of what he was given, just pocketed the rest. You can do that back then. And I think he used that to make other movies. So well done. Good negotiating. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. That's, that's impressive. Didn't know that. Sneaky, yeah. Oh, and to have and have not, the worst Hemingway adaptation, but it had a call in Bogart. Oh god! Oh. I think I think none of the Hemingway adaptations are any good, to be honest. Uh, Who no. built holes and A Farewell to Arms are both pretty high up there. The Gary Cooper version is great, and Ingrid Bergman was superb in that, and had a great final shot of um of the ladder for Who built holes. Only good Hemingway adaptations I've seen. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, that's us. Um, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, tell your friends to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify because you're listening right now. Um, subscribe on social media and let us know what you find what's to fight about. And we'll see you. Well, we won't see you because we're not seeing anyone at the moment, but we'll, uh, you'll hear us Yeah. next week. You'll hear us, hear our very comforting voices that will lull you into a sense of comfort that everything is okay in the world when it's not. But that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and if you feel like down about things, go watch Chinatown. Yeah, that'll 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 that'll, uh, that'll lift your spirits. It. <laughs> but the thing is, I found even these depressing films are still a good distraction. Anything that's good enough art that you become absorbed in it. Yeah, well, because sometimes real life is actually 
way more depressing than art. And sometimes you need, yeah, a distraction to tell you that, you know, things are not as bad because other things are worse. <laughs> Does it make sense? I think so. <laughs> I it hope does. so. Anyway. Well, in, on that note, enjoy movies. Yes. Yep. Stay safe. Enjoy life and good night. Stay safe. Good night. Bye.